Okay, and so I think that's a really interesting uh, ambiguity, like you said, talking about the beginning of the Philippine-American War as opposed to the 1898 Spanish-American War. Now, how does how do perceptions of Filipinos and Americans change on the ground as the war goes on? How can we tell that Americans are using different language or, you know, um, the public is starting to develop different views of the enemy, let's say? How are things changing throughout the Philippine-American War? So one of the things that I found in my research is that the the war itself, uh, not surprisingly, accelerates and intensifies the hostilities between Americans and Filipinos. Uh, and, you know, uh, so suddenly each side is, you know, finding uh, friends and comrades killed. So you see this intensification of rage. And on the Americans' side, it's fueled by a bunch of different things. On the one hand, the American soldiers who have felt cooped up in Manila for, you know, six months are thrilled to be able to be fighting someone. And there's a certain amount of this that is just pent-up, martial, masculine rage and aggression that is being let out. There is a way that there is a sense that, uh, including among the soldiers, that what they are now doing is imposing a legitimate treaty on Filipinos who will not um, um, respect the settlement between the United States and Spain. So there's a sense now of you know, kind of fighting for a just cause to suppress what they see as a disorderly insurrection against legitimate American rule. And uh, and then there's also the beginnings of this intense racialization process that I, I track happening throughout the war. And so, um, you know, many of the soldiers are, you know, they're growing up in uh, an American society that in different ways and in different regions and with different textures um, is completely um, awash in racial thinking about the very fundamental nature of society and politics. And as I said early on, when the political relationship between the United States and the Philippines is kind of unclear, some of that is held in check, I think, by the sense that Americans and Filipinos might be allies. They might actually, um, you know, be allied against Spain. Um, but once they're in a context of uh, geopolitical antagonism and warfare, uh, I really feel like there's a transformative dynamic where a lot of the racist thinking that soldiers um, or bringing to bear on kind of all aspects of their lives uh, really gets unleashed in the Philippines. Um, and as I argue, it takes lots of different forms. I mean, so you have soldiers that do apply uh, racist language um, directed in the United States against uh, Native Americans or against African Americans uh, to Filipinos in the context of the war. Um, um, and some of the soldiers have been fighting in the Indian Wars, and the language of kind of we're fighting Indians over here, you know, comes fairly naturally to them. Um, but there's also new vocabularies that begin to take up um, momentum among the troops that are, you know, very intensely racist, violent um, kind of terms uh, for Filipinos uh, that are novel to the Philippines and which suggest that you know, the Americans are aware they're fighting a different group of people in a different context. 
Um, and uh, so, but in any case, you see that kind of different set of perceptions really appearing in soldiers, you know, newspapers, in soldiers' letters home to their families. You know, one very striking case I found was a, a soldier whose letters spanned from that late 1898 period to the early 1899 period. And and you can really see he's, you know, quite um, taken with Filipino society uh, during the pre-war period. And you just see over the course of his letters over several months that he becomes you know, much more um, violent and racist in his in his language about the Filipino enemy. And so that's a very striking dynamic. And during this period, the uh, Filipino forces are working very hard to maintain um, standard formations and to kind of fight in uniform. And their officers have been trained in some cases by European military experts. And it's very important to of the Philippine Republic, that the international community see this as a war of empire in which the United States is illegitimately imposing its will on a new republic, and that the way that you do that is you fight using standard formations um, in a way where the you know where the enemy can see you, you can see them, right? The and kind of obeying the laws of war uh, in terms of. Uh, taking care of prisoners, etc., and this is very self-conscious effort by by the Filipino leadership to not only kind of try to win the battle on the ground militarily, but to win the battle diplomatically by communicating to the world that you know it's the Americans here that are the barbarians, uh, and it's Filipinos who represent the civilized standards of warfare and of pursuing legitimate self-governance, and they they're aware that they're. Um, up against very stiff odds uh, in the context of a world that is organized by white supremacist colonialisms, where they recognize that, that you know, they're going completely against the grain of the dominant understandings of who can and should have their own, uh, their own Republican society. So, um, so that's the effort. And yet in the context of uh, emerging war, um, you uh, you do have this intense racialization of, of Filipinos by American soldiers. And and the other thing that begins to happen is that in the domestic press uh, in the U.S., which is covering the war, you, know, you begin to see also the depiction of, you know, Filipinos as, um, you know, as barbarians, as ungrateful, um, you know, as incapable of self-government, um, so those discourses begin to give traction to uh, the campaign to defend the war in the American public, which becomes quite contentious, um, as a lot of Americans are not convinced that this is a war the U.S. should be fighting. Are there specific, and you mentioned one before, but are there specific examples of, of speeches or other letters, other language that really stuck out to you that, you know, I guess either could sh could have shocked you or just really you know, you felt like was a, a strong example of the change going on during this time. Well, I think the, the one that struck me was, I guess, seeing the emergence of this racist slur among the soldiers, which is the term goo-goo, which um, begins to appear uh, in their letters and, you know, in the jocular songs that they would sing to each other in the battlefield. The origins of the term remain ambiguous. You know, my theory is that it comes from a, a kind of turn-of-the-century popular song that uh, the American soldiers are, are listening to as they're kind of coming over on boats and 
Um, but there are many other theories for where this term comes from, but it becomes part of this kind of manly insider racist vocabulary that the soldiers start to use amongst themselves. And it helps them kind of subhumanize not only Filipino soldiers, but also Filipino civilians. And, uh, and so one of the consequences of this racializing of the war is that the barriers between uh, civilian and combatant uh, that were supposed to be the ones under which U.S. forces were operating begin to erode uh, as the American forces begin to see themselves as not just fighting against, uh, you know, an armed military force representing some kind of polity, but they begin to see themselves as fighting against an entire population. And this really accelerates with the decision by uh, Filipino leadership to adopt guerrilla warfare, that by November of 1899, the U.S. forces are you know, proving to be capable of overpowering the forces of the Philippine Republic, which is retreating. And very reluctantly, forces of the Philippine Republic decide to adopt a guerrilla warfare strategy where they melt into the countryside, begin to, you know, soldiers begin to disguise themselves as civilians. They begin to rely very heavily on the support of, uh, of peasants and people in civil society to provide intelligence and food and shelter and support. Um, and so it becomes really impossible for these occupying American forces to tell who they're fighting. Um, and this really stalls the U.S. campaign. It proves to be militarily a very successful uh, strategy um, by the Philippine Revolution, uh, rather by the Philippine Republic's forces. But in terms of this uh, intense racialization of of the war, it really uh, uh, ends up providing the occasion for American soldiers to say, well, we really are fighting against an entire population, a kind of savage, barbaric, backward, um, and treacherous uh, population of people that will, you know, provide us food and shelter, and then turn on us secretly. Um, you know, help us with translation and serve as guides and carriers, and then attack our forces. So, um, so what you really see by the you know 1900-1901 period is not just everyday units decentralized throughout the Philippines, but even at the command level, you have U.S. officers essentially saying, it's no holds barred. You know, you can really uh, destroy civilian property, you can attack and imprison and even torture Filipino civilians to get intelligence from them because you can't really know who the enemy is. And in this process, this racialization process, and the uh, the turning of the U.S. war to really extreme violent dimensions uh, against the population really go hand in hand and kind of spiral with each other. And so <laughs> kind of to, to jump off of that, then how did they spiral? You know, how did what kind of beca what became a racialized war, a war, you know, in the minds of many soldiers of like a war of the races is you know, what was the effect on the psychology of soldiers, the language of soldiers, and even the public back home? Well, I think among soldiers, it kind of creates, you know, a permission structure for them to uh, carry out the most extreme forms of violence against people they encounter. Uh, you know, they're able to not sort of see uh, Filipino civilians they may be encountering, you know, uh, as people that are kind of outside the combat. 
but people that are enemies that can be justifiably fought and killed. And uh, and so this you know, really intensifies the the um, the process whereby you have you know soldiers that are you know burning whole villages down, you know capturing and torturing you know the mayors of towns who they think are aiding the the revolutionaries. And I think for the you know American forces, they're able to really see themselves increasingly as you know, pushing back the frontiers of civilization, you know, in ways that many imperial powers kind of understood colonial violence, you know, as a war that was being waged on behalf of the civilized world to push back the frontiers of enlightenment, the rule of law, rationality, you know, property regimes, all these things that essentially the, you know, European colonial powers believed that they were bringing to their colonial spaces through violence. I think a lot of the U.S. soldiers begin to understand what they're doing in similar terms. And for people back home, it's very similar. You know, as a debate begins to take off, where you have a, a very lively and robust anti-war community, very diverse in its politics, that begins to contest the war and to sort of say, look, this is essentially the United States you know, fighting against polity seeking its freedom in ways roughly parallel to the American revolutionaries. There's a lively, robust community of anti-war activists in the United States, very diverse in their politics, who really see the war that the United States is fighting in the Philippines as illegitimate, uh, that if the United States wants to continue to think of itself as a republic, then it needs to support republican movements. Uh, and polities that seek self-governance wherever they are. And so that movement is very um, vocal and active in campaigning against the war. And it's a really contested issue in 1899, you know, 1900, all the way really through 1902. And in the context of that opposition, you have the defenders of the war that are also turning to racist vocabularies to say, look, the parallel between Filipinos and the American revolutionaries was false, that that form of Republican freedom was never intended for people of color. You know, the revolutionaries were Anglo-Saxons. They had the genius of freedom and civilization in their bones. Filipinos, they say, are Asiatics. They're barbarians who were nurtured under Spanish despotism. Uh, they're not prepared for self so they essentially try to disrupt the analogy that the anti-imperialists are are mobilizing, in part by using these very intense uh, racist languages that you know Filipinos are don't constitute a united society. They're they're broken up into tribes that are at each other's throats, and what the United States is really doing is bringing civilized unity to the Philippines. That the U.S. will conquer the Philippines, govern these scattered tribes, bring them into some kind of national unity. And when Filipinos are ready to the standards that the Americans define, at that point, the United States will benevolently grant them their freedom. And so racism becomes very important in terms of justifying why the United States is fighting in the Philippines and how the United States is fighting in the Philippines. And so I think that's, you know, a, a good nuance to pick up on um, if you're listening and haven't studied this for a long time, you know, because there's a, a subtle shift that's happening, right, uh, from the beginning of the war where there's this kind of ambivalence, unsure quality on both sides of Americans and, and Filipinos. And then, like you're mentioning, there's a clear debate and kind of laying the foundation of 
colonization of empire and the foundation of, you know, justifying invading a place thousands of miles away. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I tried to do in my research, and which many other historians have done as well, is just to reconstruct how uh, contested this war was, that uh, the Americans really were at odds with some of the fundamental principles that were animating the conquest of the Philippines. And some of those motivations, to be sure, were very self-centered and very um, self-motivated. I mean, there were fears that if the United States conquered the Philippines, it would lead to the militarization of American society, where military forces would suppress freedom in the United States in the same way. And of course, this is a time when the U.S. military is being used to suppress uh, labor revolts, to suppress strikes. And so that fear was not an idle fear, but it was a self-centered fear. For some of the anti-imperialists, they're racists, and they're afraid that you know, the United States should not be getting entangled with non-white people any more than it needs to. And they make quite explicit analogies saying, you know, look, uh, you know, white supremacy is facing all kinds of challenges from the assertions of black people in the wake of Reconstruction. And, you know, the United States basically can't handle another non-white dilemma. And so, again, you know, a kind of anti-imperialist claim that was linked to you know, really self-centered, racist uh, kind of values. But that said, there were other anti-imperialists who really did affirm the right of Filipinos to govern themselves and really tried to kind of universalize some idea of what political freedom might look like. And they did that within what were often very ethnocentric terms. But you really see a lot of variety among the anti-imperialists. And it's, I think, you know, partly in the context of those arguments that you have the supporters of the war, you know, turning to these very tried and true political ideologies, essentially saying, look, if you're not white, you don't have any claim to self-government. And at a moment when you're seeing the dismantling of the reservation system, you're seeing the beginnings of Jim Crow consolidation, uh, you're seeing the consolidation of Asian exclusion, those arguments become quite compelling to many Americans. And the, and the fact that the that Filipinos are being racialized in the context of the war, I think really shifts the balance in some respects uh, against the anti-imperialists. I mean, I think that and the fact that ultimately the Philippine Revolution is, is you know, the, the Philippine Republic's forces are not militarily successful. I think really does change the political time. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's a good teaser for talking about the future um, of both the, the Philippines and the U.S. and the U.S. Filipino, um, you know, colonization project or, or empire building that happens um, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, but that is something to look forward to in uh, in the future. So we will really, really grateful to talk about the war itself, Paul. It is really um, a whirlwind of a discussion, too, just to go through all these topics. And it really was um, you know, three, four, maybe you say four and a half, five years. But um, I think that's a good place to to wrap it up for today. So thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you. 